Welcome to episode 99 of Texting. On today's show, we have a right rowdy rabble. We've got Gabriel Weinberg from DuckDuckGo, the Google upstart who spent the past week on the front page of Hacker News flicking his fingers at Google. Hi, Gabriel. <laughs> Hi. We've got Peter Cooper from Coda.io, who's a regular expression genius and a very nice English chap. Hi, Peter. Hi there. We've got Jason Roberts, co-host of Texting and creator of Never Ignite, <laughs> previously called App Ignite until it didn't. And of course, myself, Justin Vincent, creator of Plugio.com, general tech genius and super nice guy. All True. right. Time to get this thing on the road. Um, the, your other big claim to fame, uh, Peter, is um, Ruby Inside, right? Yep, that's right. And you have, what, some like 25,000 readers, subscribers to that? Yeah, it's, it's a bit up and down because of feedback. You know, the numbers aren't entirely precise, but uh, it's close to that, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty big number. Um, so, in the in the scheme of the Ruby on Rails community, how big of a guy are you? Are you a let's say a big shot, a small shot, a big fry, a small fry? How can someone answer <laughs> a question like that? <laughs> it's multiple if choice. If I were a Rails developer, I'd say yeah, I'm the biggest dude in the history of the world. But us, the kind of people who focus more on Ruby are a little bit more modest than that. So, uh, yeah, I'll say I'm very happily perhaps at the top of the B list. So, uh, or at the bottom of the A-list. So you consider, so you consider yourself more of a Ruby's guy than a Rails guy? Oh, definitely, yeah. Okay, what's yeah, the difference so, between those two uh, communities? I mean, I, I, I assume that Ruby, to, to, all extents, and extent, to an extent that it is a community, is the Rails community, but I guess it's... Heresy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there did used to be more of a, a split than there is now. It seems to have all rained back in again now with uh, Rails Free and so on. Uh, and the people who tend to be top Rails developers are also well known, you know, in in both areas. But I think a few years ago, when Rails was the the one getting most of the attention, there was definitely people that would identify as being in the Ruby community, and people would identify as being in the Rails community. And I've always erred towards the the Ruby side of things. But I think now everyone's kind of matured a bit, and um, some of the the, the bigger hot shots have kind of peeled off to do their own projects and stuff like that. So uh, not such a big deal anymore. So, Jason, what kind of celebrity do you think you are? I'm a small shot. Are you? Are you? <laughs> no, like no, a no. Z I'm a list? small shot. That's what I've heard. I'm a, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, I, I am. I am. I'm trying to move from small fry into big fry. So. Right. Well, Gabriel is definitely a big fry. We got We got to put it that way. On the front <laughs> no way. I'm just on Hacker News, maybe. <laughs> well, on the Hacker News front page of Hacker News, pretty much most of the week with uh, some pretty good uh, Google bashing there. Tell us about that. How's that been for you? I, wait, I'd say he's probably a small shot. A big shot would be like uh, uh, Paul Graham, right? So he's okay. like below the Paul Graham, I'd say. Most right. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it been like the last week? Well, I mean, uh, what, where did it all come from and um, where's it all going? Um, that just occurred to me one night that would be cool to put up. It was like a post about how not to get how Google's tracking you and how DuckDuckGo doesn't track. And I literally made that in like a couple hours <laughs> and then, you know, sent it to a few people to make sure I wasn't being a complete idiot and then put it out there. Um, but it's been good. I got a lot of traffic and it got me a lot of new users. But basically it's had a lot more benefits than it's had negatives. Cause I know that on the, some of the comments on Hacker News, 
some of the people were kind of down on it. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's had way more positive than negative effect for me. Awesome. Probably, so would, you know, orders of magnitude, more positive. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to get some negative feedback, right? I mean, it's, almost, it's rare that you have like a 100% thumbs up on anything on the web. Yeah, I am I, used to negative feedback. <laughs> I, I, I attract a lot of it. It converted me. I mean, I, I basically, uh, as soon as I saw it, I was like, okay, I'm going to give DuckDuckGo a, a try for two solid days. I'm going to use that purely as my search engine. And uh, yeah, I did it. And uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, I've sent, sent Gabriel a list of uh, thoughts and suggestions, which I'm sure he's got about 10 million in his inbox. But uh, yeah. Sent some good feedback. I mean, oh, basically thanks. all the areas where we suck, <laughs> right. which, is, which is a lot, but we're improving. Maybe that should be your new handle, Justin, is unsolicited advice. Oh, oh really? <laughs> really? Like you've never given any unsolicited advice. Yeah. Hey, I, 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 I gave it to you first. So, uh, okay. so uh, Gabe, I guess that qualifies a, as a micro opportunity, right? Which is something you've written about and, and I think is a really cool term. I mean, did you invent that term or did... Or is that I am taking credit for it. I didn't know it before I wrote it, so I'm I'm taking credit. <laughs> I love that term. Is we, that a talk- micro opportunity? I mean, he he created that opportunity, and I think some other people rode the back of it. Well, a micro opportunity, from my understanding, is something that is maybe not in the direct thread of development of what you're working on, but it's related. It won't take a ton of time to get to ship it, whatever it is, whether it's a blog post or it's a a new feature or something, and it will have many times the payoff that it, for the time spent. Um, is, that, is that a way, good way to... Just before Gabriel answers, what I thought it was, was there was something happening in the current media and you kind of rode that bull you, or just went on the back of that and used that as a micro opportunity. So maybe we've got two different... Yeah, yeah, no, no, they're both the same thing, right? So you, you see something pop up and you go, oh, I'm going to jump on that because everybody's talking about it. It's, everybody's in, it's, everybody's in, it's in everybody's mind space and I can, I can take advantage of that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I guess when I conceived of it, it was more what Justin was saying, which was that you would see something that you could jump into a conversation or react to something and capture some of that mind share. And right. in this case, but maybe I was doing that in this case too, because there was a there was mind share around privacy and sort of Google being looking for alternatives to Google, you know. Right. And the I guess there was a as uh, a a handful of articles that popped up related to this and one was that uh what was it um the what was the main article the sea of google spam or something like that yeah, yeah why yeah. we why we desperately need a new and better google was a TechCrunch article anyway oh yeah that might have kicked it off i i i think of as um jeff atwood's piece kicking it off because he had, he had written one a few weeks even before that mm. about right. all the stack overflow like spam copying and google Right. Well, what are your, what's your, I mean, I, you know, obviously you're a competitor. So what's your take on, I mean, how bad is the spam and the gaming and the marketing and, you know, what do you think is going to happen with all of that? I mean, I'm pretty biased, right? Sure. <laughs> well, this is a but, softball. I'm throwing it, I'm giving you a softball. Let's, let's yeah. Well, I mean, that was one of the reasons I, I got into the whole thing to begin with is I thought that it was, it was becoming way too SEO spam. And I thought there was an opportunity to be way more aggressive. I honestly, I don't understand exactly why Google isn't more aggressive with it. I mean, they obviously could be. If I can do it, they can do it, you know? Um, I have a theory as to why they don't do it, but um, 
I honestly don't know. But if that's really the crux of their problem, I think that's a solvable problem to, to some degree. But it requires them to sen- essentially censor, and that's why I think they don't want to do it because they're going to get accused of censoring. Yeah, I mean, feel free to swing away because we're a show of unsupported theories. So <laughs> right. every theory is, let's hear it. I, yeah, yeah, give us a little more on, on that. I mean, so... Yeah, I, I think that they're... They're getting a lot of criticism, and they're even worried about the government with antitrust and monopoly stuff, and they don't want to be seen as um, creating editorial censoring decisions. You know, so they try to stick to the algorithmic stuff and really make that line. Whereas, you know, I've said like, okay, I don't think the demand media content's that great. I'm just taking that out. You know, I don't think, and that's one of the one of the ones that comes up a lot. I don't think they can they feel they can make that editorial decision without getting into a lot of trouble and they don't want to have that conversation with everyone. The, the thing is, I, I find personally when I do my general searching, I, very few times when I'm frustrated and very few times when I don't get the result I'm looking for using Google. So I wonder if this is also part of just people's skill at searching or not. I do think it really depends on who you are and what you're searching. And I think like Jeff Atwood in particular has like, he's in a court, he's clearly constantly searching for Stack Overflow stuff. And that's like one area where it sucks, you know? And so he right, yeah. probably sees it way more than other people. I mean, there are, cl- there are clearly like areas where it sucks. Like if you're searching for a lot of travel stuff, it's pretty bad. If you're searching for a lot of how-to stuff, it's pretty bad. If you're searching for programming stuff, it's generally pretty good. But if you're going to open source your content, what the hell do you expect? <laughs> I mean, of course people are going to use the content and, and like put it out there. I mean, that's, you know, that's what's going to happen to Stack Overflow, right? Yeah, I mean, well, you don't even have to open source it, right? They'll just scrape your site and do it. But, 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 uh, but isn't Stack Overflow open source? To my, my it right is. Thinking? I use it on DuckDuckGo. You may not, right. I'm guessing that's the kind of thing they wanted people to use it for. Right. Well, the, I mean, I guess the big issue is where there's money, there's going to be people gaming the system. And, and since so much of this software and technology stuff is free, there's probably it's not as gamed as much as, say, drugs and travel and mortgages and things like that, right? I mean, yeah. Gabe, I think yeah. The point was that, like, this stuff is obvious spam. Everyone's reporting these same 10 sites. Why haven't you blocked them yet? You know? Like, you know, it was as interesting as the, the. I think there was an examples in the article by TechCrunch. I read like four. One was by uh, Marco. I forget the guy's name. The guy who does um, Instapaper, I think. Um, there were some examples of the kind of like very specific searches, and there were the kind of searches you would do almost on like Wolfram Alpha, which is like, what's the you know temperature in you know Sao Paulo, or you know how many days is it until you know, you know Halloween of two thousand eleven, things like that. That you know, what what Wolf Wolfram Alpha is, I guess, term more a, a computation engine, isn't that what Stephen Wolfram calls it? And I'm just thinking like that kind of stuff has a lot of usefulness, and maybe the future lies more with an intelligent, more more intelligence in the search than just this raw search. But Google does that. I mean, I, I get those kind of answers all the time, and and totally rely on them. Well, if it's written on the internet, I guess it's true, right? <laughs> well, what's your, yeah, what's, well, I don't know, like, Gabe, what do you think about what, I mean, in terms of like, say, looking at it like a Wolfram Alpha? Yeah, well, I mean, Wolfram Alpha is a big part of DuckDuckGo. So, I mean, I completely agree with that. I, my, my view is that there's generally there's a vertical search engine that does your query better than Google. And if I can figure out a way to query that API and show you that result, that's my goal. And so, like, there's a lot more answers that show up from Wolfram Alpha and DuckDuckGo. Those queries in particular, I think, 
or, or variations of them work well. Um, but I think Google knows that they're trying to do that. They just, for the same reason, or, or maybe it's a different reason, they don't like to use external APIs. So they don't, they're not going to query Wolfram Alpha. So in a sense, in, in, you're kind of a automated curation system or a meta search engine, I guess, right? It's a really a hybrid. Like we, I do my own crawling for some things and, um, I think the best term is hybrid. That's what TechCrunch said too. I, I okay. think that's the best one um, because it's really just. I'll just go where the search results are best, where I think I can get the best results. I have no. I'm not wedded to anything that I do. You know, if Wolfram Alpha is going to do it way better, then I'll just use them. Right. You're just yeah. Right. It's it's not a. Uh, it's not a political or philosophical thing. It's purely whatever is better. Whatever works works. And right. Uh, and I think Google's entrenched in such a way that they have. Even though they're things that are better than them, they're not going to use them because that's just the way they are. And well, see, they're too is, big at this stage, yeah. And this is another example of the David versus Goliath problem. And I think we've talked a little bit this on the show that when you have like a smaller, I think I read an article about this where if you look at all the battles that have that have happened throughout human history, the smaller armies have often beaten the larger army armies, especially when there's a significant size um, difference, because a smaller army would use asymmetric or unconventional approaches because they knew they couldn't attack straight up. And Alexander the Great uh, was, perf- you know, he, he embodied that approach. And it's like you get these big armies and, you know, and you could almost think of Google in this way that they, first of all, they're wedded to some approach, right? They're like some ancient, like uh, one of these, you know, Roman Empire army or British army where they just have this very specific way of doing things. They're wedded to it and they're really big. And so in Google's situation, right, they're wedded to the automatic approach without curation, without using external APIs. And they also have the government looking at them, which is antitrust, where you don't have any of those problems. So you can do all these different things and you're like, yeah, you're really tiny, but there's all this opportunity for you. Is it also a case of innovator's dilemma? where Google are kind of locked in in that way. People have been making that argument. I mean, Google swears up and down that they don't do anything related to search results for revenue. But, I mean, I think some people find that hard to believe in the nth degree, right? But that is what they say. Right. Because well, usually, so- I mean, the innovative designer doesn't have to be about money, but it usually is that you have, uh, you know, revenue stream. I'd like to just quickly bring Pete, Peter in here because I... I feel like yeah. we've gone gone a few minutes without any any any. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's going to hang up on us. Hey, Pete, what what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually been sitting down um, while you've been going along, writing little notes as I've been going along, just so I can ch- uh, chip in and sound intelligent. And then it smoves onto a different topic, and I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> new page of notes here. Um, no, actually, just one thing, just rewinding a little bit to those uh, those micro opportunities we were talking about. Um, we saw that with the the instant things that came along. You remember when YouTube instant came out sure. and then suddenly like the next week on hacker news i think like there were at least 10 different you know it was hacker news instant there was reddit instant there was everything instant basically um and we saw that happen there and uh, i actually did something similar when this uh, tool came out called reddit rewind you could actually see the front page of reddit and like rewind it on a kind of like an hourly basis mm-hmm. um and as soon as i saw that literally within a couple of hours i got something up called hacker slide which um is still up hackerslide.com and it's basically the same thing but with the hacker news front page so if you've gone to sleep or whatever got up and you want to uh, see how things were over the last few hours because the front page does change so quick now um you can look at it on there and so you know i've sort of had experience with that um you know you really need to get into an opportunity so quick now because people you know people who are our developers are not only having the ideas now, they're also able to implement them so quickly using all these uh, new tools and languages we've got. 
How did that do for you? What, what kind of traffic did you get to that? Um, not amazing. I think uh, just from like the the first, I think it got to like number one on Hacker News the day I released it, and it uh, got something like three or four thousand visitors. But then since then, I think it's settled down to somewhere around about hundred visitors a day or something like that. So, um, that's nice. you know, not mind blown, but it's uh, it does come in useful from time to time, especially if I need to catch up myself. So in, in, can, can we rewind even further? And, sure. and <laughs> who is this Peter guy anyway? <laughs> no, I know Peter. I just want to know how how the twenty five thousand newsletter subscribers came. Was it was it very gradual? Was there big spikes? Or I mean, that's such, it's a lot of subscribers. Oh, if we're talking about the the Ruby Inside subscribers, those are people that subscribe to the feed on Ruby Inside. That's been over the course of a few years. So, um, in terms of you know, the time period, it's not a particularly amazing success when you compare to things like TechCrunch and so on. Um, well, I still find I, it pretty amazing. <laughs> Having but, writing a blog myself, I mean, like, did was it just sort of gradual, though? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there was a lot up front just because there wasn't anything in the uh, Ruby community that was quite like it at the time when it came out in 2006. And it, you know, it did ride on the, the back of Rails a bit, I guess. Um, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but I, I do come from more of a, a slightly journalistic background, so I sort of knew exactly sort of how to play it and how to pitch it and, uh, you know, how to get people involved. So it, it's definitely not like a, a personal blog situation or even a normal tech blog where, you know, you perhaps pick and choose what you cover, um, you know, based on your own interests more. This is definitely a sort of we're going to try and cover everything and, you know, come to us. We're sort of going to be a bit more, you know, authoritative about the topic. So have you sort of saturated that particular market and it, and it will only grow as the community itself grows or are you seeing a, a regular growth month over month? Um, the growth has definitely slowed down since 2009, so um, sort of in the last 18 months or so, um, and it sort of eked from like 20 to 25,000. Uh, but I am actually, I keep expanding into different areas. So I expanded into a site called Ruby Flow, which is like a, a community site where anyone can post a link. It's not you know, a blog maintained by me. Um, and then I think it was about five months ago, I released something called Ruby Weekly, which I guess plugs into this uh, micro-opportunity thing again, because I saw all of this stuff happening with email newsletters uh, over the last year. I've kind of had this resurgence. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to have a piece of that pie. So uh, I released what's uh, called Ruby Weekly. And now that's, I think, just almost at 4,000 subscribers in the last few months. Oh, uh, that's and then good. I Yeah, and I went on to do JavaScript Weekly as well. So... Um, that's done perhaps even better in terms of the growth. That's only about two months old, and that's sort of about 30, 3,500 now as well. Did you initially cross-promote that to get those, and did you consider, um, I know the trend was to charge a very small fee. Did you tr did you think about doing that at all? Um, unfortunately, I, I haven't done the latter, but um, in terms of the promotion, yes. Initially, it was very much a cross-promotion from, well, I've got Ruby Inside, Ruby Flow, and you know, I know lots of people in that scene, so uh, I had a lot of support, especially on Twitter was a, a pretty big one for that, um, just because of the people that follow me on there uh, are mostly Ruby-centric. But then JavaScript kind of um, rode on the back of that partially as well. You know, I could put a link into Ruby Weekly, and I think, you know, it was like several hundred people kind of just signed up from that. So um, I guess that's one of the good things about running these kind of sites and these kind of newsletters is that 
if you're working with people who are quite open-minded, which Ruby developers, and obviously there's a big argument around this, but uh, you know how open-minded Ruby developers are to new things, I would say you know they definitely are. And if I launched, say, I don't know, like a, an Erlang inside or something along those kind of lines um, tomorrow, you know, I could at least build it up to sort of a thousand subscribers or so within you know a few months. So uh, it's a great way of cross-promoting stuff, and I, I do believe in that cross-pollination. And I finally got to this point where I can pull it off a, in a slightly successful way. I was wondering if if the stuff that you're doing is being monetized in any way, and if it is, how are you doing that? Yes, I'm. It's it's very gently at the moment. I didn't want to monetize any newsletters until they reached at least three thousand subscribers, and I thought that was going to take a lot longer than it did. So um, it kind of rocketed past three thousand. I was like, ah, okay. Um, I've not actually started to do anything here, but I have begun to take some uh, job ads, and I ran an ad for. Um, this software called Rails Kits, which is basically a, a pre-built Rails app that you can buy for a few hundred dollars and it has billing stuff in it and all that kind of thing. Um, so there's been a few bits of advertising going on and the, the CPM for email you know, is traditionally a lot better than for the web. So um, it's looking promising so far. I just need to build up those leads and build up the system to make it really easy. So I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the you know exponential growth or how you can get into exponential growth, and um, I want to ask you, uh, Gabe. So how has the DuckDuckGo user base been growing, and have you hit have you hit like a faster growth the more the more users you get, or has it been linear this whole time? Um, so I do know a lot about exponential growth. My last company was 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 very exponential. DuckDuckGo has been growing about maybe fifteen percent a month. Um, for the past like two years, so um, I guess you can call that exponential. <laughs> right, know, it's li- linear in the right. sense that it's not it's not the same. It, it grows more people come, the bigger the base are, it is. You know, so the numbers are getting bigger, but it's not been like the uh, hockey stick that you would normally associate with exponential growth. Yeah, because we uh, one thing I, I I mentioned this a little bit in the last show, which I think. Justin edited it, so it was in the outro. So I'll mention it here. Um, we 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 just recently hit the thousand mark. So one thing we we did, we we were back back in June, and we said let's try. It was the end of June. Let's say let's try in three months, the end of September, to hit 500 downloads of a new show, and you know within three months, and we 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 hit it just exact, almost like on the day. And then we said, all right, let's see if we can double it again by the end of the year. And it looked like just over the new year, we just burst past that and hit about 1100 of a discussion show downloads of a new discussion show within a week and so and i and i kind of looked back and i said you know what we've doubled every three months for like the past year and i'm i'm wondering like is this going to continue are we going to be able to continue this for like another year or two or are we just kind of like is it will immediately slow down and uh you know first of all one thing i'll say one couple of numbers i'll throw out there which are kind of interesting the well we're getting like a th- over a thousand of the new show downloads of discussion shows we Justin, we was something like it's like roughly almost a thousand, thirty thousand downloads a month of our back catalog. Yeah, which wow. comes out to something like one point five terabytes. <laughs> which, which is a, I, and that seems like a lot to me in terms of bandwidth. I mean, uh, for anyone, to, I mean, do you guys pay for bandwidth? Is that would that be fairly costly if you had to pay for that straight up? I'm not paying for bandwidth in that way, so I I think that is not cheap though. <laughs> yeah. I guess you're not paying for a bandwidth either, huh? It it was a bit of a surprise to me that that back catalog would get that many down. I mean, thirty thousand a month. I mean, it's a, it's a significant amount of people hearing our stuff a month, and um, 
I was just kind of shocked. And when we went into this enterprise, I certainly never considered the back catalog as being anything interesting. And now it's like, hey, that could actually potentially be monetized, you know? If we could like find a way of adding a clip onto the beginning of everything. Yeah, automatically without going back and re-editing every yeah, show. Absolutely. Because exactly. if, if we grow, if we double in size a few more times, I mean, you have something like a hundred or 200,000 downloads a month of our show. I mean, I imagine that would be worth something to an advertiser if we decided to go that route. But uh, so, so my question, Gabe, to you is, I mean, what, is your th- what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, obviously, our space of technology and entrepreneurship and, and whatever, it's not an infinite market size. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it has a, a limit. But would you, would you guess that it would slow down over the next year? Or do you think we have an opportunity to keep doubling? <laughs> just, I mean, obviously, it's a pure speculation, but what's your thought? So uh, a couple things. One, I, I just looked on Amazon S3. It seems like it should cost $150 for the first terabyte if, okay. you're, if, you're, if you're going on S3, just for anyone who's curious. Um, the, um, it's 15 cents per gigabyte, up to 10 oh. terabytes. Um, the, I think it depends on how it's spreading, right? So if, you're, if, you're, if that is primarily sort of by word of mouth and that base is, hap- is spreading sort of naturally. Um, yeah. that That's intimates- exactly how it is because we're not doing anything really. I mean, occasionally we do a post that gets a little bit of juice, but that rarely brings in too many additional over the normal growth. So that says to me, that's similar to the DuckDuckGo position I'm in, is that you have this natural inherent growth based on your user size. And so that means to me that you can accelerate that growth by, um, you know, getting more eyeball, good eyeballs, obviously, into it initially by either doing advertising or trying to do more promotion or whatnot, because then your just user base will be bigger and you'll grow faster. To your sure. other question, I think that you're just, I don't think you're saturated at all. I mean, I think... Um, the potential audience of your show is probably like people who follow like, you know, all the startup people and those numbers are really high, you know, like the top startup blogs and whatnot. Yeah. Have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah. Tech, so. I, mean, for, I mean, basically TechCrunch, for example. Right. So that the yeah, people who exactly. listen to TechCrunch could probably find the show interesting, although it may be a little bit techy. But, you know, but then again, there's a lot more programmers in the world and there are people who are interested in TechCrunch and a lot of those people, most programmers aren't that interested in TechCrunch. Interesting. People, you know, I mean, who, but who would be interesting in hearing about NoSQL and JavaScript and Ruby and other things that we talk about, so. I'm interested to know, who, who is Gabriel's audience? Have you worked that out yet? I did put out a post, uh, a, um, I used this uh, survey.io. Have you, any of you guys used that? It's a uh, like free tool by Kiss Metrics. Like, yeah, well, you know, we just in our last show we interviewed uh, Lance Jones, and he was talking about um, a number of those um, survey tools for analytics and and things. And uh, Kiss Metrics is one of the companies he mentioned, one of the tools he mentioned. It's pretty nice because the surveys already built for you. They built in this, you know, it's standard. I mean, obviously, if you want to be really serious, you could customize it and stuff. But it's all free. You just literally, like, two clicks, three seconds later, you can send it out to people, and they'll start filling out your survey. So I did that from the blog, and I gather from it that, you know, it's basically, as you would imagine, it's a lot of tech startup entrepreneurs, although it seemed like it leaned more tech, sort of probably like your show, than... um, than just uh, the non-tech entrepreneur. entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. So like maybe there's a lot of like programmers who maybe like want to go out on their own, but don't really know how to do it, you know, right. Um, right. that kind of thing. So it's, I think it's probably very correlated to your show. So your audience is basically the same as texting, you think? That's interesting. I do think so. Yeah. 
I'm seeing cross promotion here, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think I think we should we should you should certainly put our show on the bottom of every search result. <laughs> I think I think, go I, think Peter, by I, think, I think Peter has a lot of overlap too. He's not just Groovy anymore. He's JavaScript. He's you know this other stuff. Peter has more users than all of us, so I think we should be telling him to do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hook us up, Peter. Peter, what's, what's your audience with the Coda.io? I guess that's probably a, a redundant question, really, isn't it? Given the name Coda.io. <laughs> yeah, it, it depends what the intentional audience are and what the actual resulting audience are, which are entirely different things um, with that project. Well, how, how has it been growing? What's your, what's your audience size now at Coda.io? Um, well, it's actually it's kind of plateaued because I haven't... Um, I, I think I... Actually, I spoke to you, I think it was in January last year, um, when it was sort of very young and so on. Um, and I've still got this list of, I think, about 1,800 people or so that kind of want to know when it launches. And I still haven't emailed them, um, <laughs> just because it's <laughs> it's still in this kind of like weird alpha-like kind of you know permanent alpha, beta, Minecraft-style um, arrangement where there's just so much to get done. And there's so much involved in a kind of a, a content aggregation system like that that... You know, it's one of these things that you can look at and uh, 37 signals say that, oh, you know, people look at Basecamp and say they could replicate it in a weekend. And, you know, you just can't do that. Um, and I've sort of come into some of those issues myself with the sort of the auto tagging and the auto classification of the content. Um, you know, you've really got to get that stuff right. And it's exactly the same with the algorithms that you were discussing about, you know, Google. You know, they've had problems for years and years with you know, spam and people complaining about the results and the algorithms and so on. And, you know, I've kind of started on a, a much smaller um, process than that, but it is pretty much the same process in a way in that I have to go through all of this stuff and find some way of putting some sense to it. Right, right. How, how much time are you putting into Coderio versus your other projects? Currently, quite little. It's uh, a couple of months ago I decided to focus on the the things that Coderio was meant to promote. So, uh, Coderio wasn't necessarily a, um, kind of a play as a business in its own right um, to kind of monetize separately. It was really there to build up an audience like I've done with all the other sites to then promote other things that I was interested in doing, which um, involves uh, writing, screencasts, and some training. So I've actually beginning some training, uh, online training for Rubyists next week. Um, I've sort of got another book that's um, you know sort of very close to being done. So all of those kind of things I've been building up so that then when I do go back to Coder.io, I'm going to have the audience to help promote a lot of that stuff. Well, let's let's hear a bit, little bit about those, uh, about your books and your screencasts. Um, we had Amy Hoy on uh, recently, and she's a big proponent now of info products. Um, and she seems to, th she gives some really good reasons why you can make more money than you'd expect with something like a screencast or an ebook, and uh, and, the, and one benefit they those type of products have to say in that web app is that there's no customer support really. <laughs> Once it's done, it just kind of works until it goes out of date. Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, Amy and I, are, uh, we're not actually like real life friends or anything, but we're sort of uh, quite good uh, Twitter buddies, I would say. And, you know, a lot of the <laughs> stuff that she's um, been doing, you know, um, has definitely influenced me. And I'm, I think in a few different ways, I've sort of um, perhaps given her a slight bit of influence here and there, um, just with some of the projects I've been doing. But into a much bigger monetary success than I have uh, to this point. Um, but yeah, um, one of the things that I really wanted to uh, work on was a book called Self-Promotion for Geeks, 
which actually stemmed from a post I did on Hacker News, or sorry, a comment I did on Hacker News about two years ago. Someone was asking, you know, how can I promote my startup? You know, what different techniques are there? And I basically did this post, I think, about 30 different points. It's a, it a pretty long post. Um, definitely went under the I have the that fold. bookmark, by the way, in my oh, cool. screen right now. There's <laughs> <laughs> very few of my bookmarks, and that's one of them. Excellent. Um, you know, I, I think I said in that post, I said, you know, if you if, if you're interested in these kind of ideas generally, um, you know, and they're things that I picked up from running Feed Digest and Code Snippets and uh, Ruby Inside and all these different things that I do and promote. Um, you know, if you're interested in me perhaps turning this into a book one day, vote this up. And I think it ended up with like 120 points or something like that, which um, two years ago on Hacker News was quite a big deal. Not so much now. Um but yeah, I just kept it in the back of my mind. And I think about six months ago, I decided to sort of investigate and look at how other people have been promoting their sites using similar ideas and put together some, you know, content for that. And it's uh, been coming together. Keep getting stalled with, because um, I've sort of had a, a daughter in the interim and, you know, uh, I'm sure most um, you know, can sympathize with some of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's been going on and off and uh, I'm hoping within the next four, six weeks, I'll have the beta out for sale. So, um, you know, it will go from there. And I think that's one of the things that Amy's kind of um, reinforced in me is that sometimes you perhaps shouldn't just spend so much time like perfecting um, these things. You just need to get it just good enough, release it, and then you can kind of, um, you know, work on the rest of the product. And, you know, she t tends to have quite slick products, but I think she's realized how uh, um, and now the, the most important thing is to get something out there and to actually start charging money for it. And, you know, that's where I want to go next. It's certainly incredibly important to to people like us and bootstrappers, that whole side of things. And for, for me, um, I think what I've kind of perfected is building the product and building the user journeys, but I'm pretty crap at actually getting people to the product. So something like that. And I think there's a lot of people who are like, who are like me. Um, and I think that I think there'd be a massive demand and a massive audience for something like that. I can't wait to read it myself. Yeah, I'm definitely focusing more on the self-promotion, I would say, than necessarily the, the company promotion. And I know that in some cases they are almost the same thing. So like I think Gabriel's probably experienced this with DuckDuckGo. There is a kind of a, a part of it is him becoming more well-known and helps DuckDuckGo become more well-known. Um, and, you know, there are actually books out there already for people who are very focused on just promoting the business. So, um, you know, other than your standard books that you find on Amazon and whatnot, there's um, a book called The Startup Book. And I forget the name of the guy who wrote it, but he's one he's quite common, uh, popular on Hacker News, um, and I've seen a lot of people recommending that. Uh, you know, I'm definitely focusing just more on the, the self-promotion angle, but if that helps your business uh, too, then that's great. So this is going to be a, an e-book, or this is going to be a, 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 both an e-book and a physical book? Yeah, after my experiences with um, sort of a mainstream publisher with Beginning Ruby, I've decided to sort of go completely self-publish with this. And I've basically built like a typical... Um, you know, yak shaving geek hobbies, build your own tool chain to do every single thing. Right. Um, so I can now produce, you know, PDFs in portrait landscape, EPUB and Kindle and so on. But a part of that is also that I can generate a PDF that's good enough to um, send to a service like uh, Lulu or one of the others I haven't really chosen What's yet. It? There's a one that um, uh, Create Space is supposed to be really good, I've heard. Have you checked heard of Create Space? I've looked into that. I think they're directly affiliated with Amazon. In fact, they might even be owned by them. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I, yeah, I've, I've, apparently they used to be a really good way of getting into the Amazon store where Lulu was having some problems, but I think that's all been sorted out now. And I must admit, I do really like the work that Lulu does, and I've bought some books from there, and they seem to be good quality generally. So I might stick with what I know, but uh, yeah, well, it, it, 
it seems to me that the ebook um, opportunity is going to grow tremendously over the next few years because of the rise of the Kindle and the Nook. I mean, my wife has a Nook and she's read about 40 or 50 books this year on it. And now her mom has a Nook. It's like, and now a friend of her, it's like everybody, all, all, all her friends are buying Nooks. And, you know, for me to read a PDF, if someone says, oh, download this PDF, I'm like, I'm not going to, I don't want to print out 80 pages. And I sure as hell I'm not going to re- sit at my computer <laughs> and read it. You know, so it's kind of not the best solution for someone like myself. But if I had an e-reader, I don't really use my wife's Nook. But if I had a Nook of my own, I would probably be much. I wonder why people go for the Nook and not the Kindle. Um, I think I can, I can tell you from Sandy's perspective, it just looked a lot cooler. I mean, the, the, the Kindle was kind of big and had all these weird buttons and it was just kind of slick. It was more like iPhone, iPad-ish, you know, it was just kind of more, uh, a simple design. I, I guess think. that was when it was, when the Kindle was the big white thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what, maybe the newer version looks cool, but I tell you the new kit, the new nook that came out, the full color with the touchscreen is slick. So it has a lot of that sort of iPad slickness to it with, because the, the first version of the nook didn't have the touchscreen. It just had like a little like sort of smaller screen below that you, could, that you could touch and it wasn't backlit and it was only black and white. But the new one, which is like $250, I think has all that stuff. And it's like Wi-Fi and all this kind of crazy stuff, but it's super light. So it's not like when you hold an iPad, it's kind of heavy to hold. If you're going to sit and read for two or three hours, the nook is super light. So it's much better for uh, reading. I think. And is it full color with the ink? I believe, yeah, I believe so. I mean, it looked awesome. I, you know, Sandy's mom was showing me at holidays and I was like, man, I want one of those. <laughs> that's oh, that's awesome. interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sandy always teases me because I'm old school with all my printouts and, uh, and I'm lying in bed at night reading all these printouts uh, from Hacker News or my or books. And she's just like, come on. You know, cause she's sitting there with her nook, just, you know, everything right there. What do you think about that? Have you been factoring that in your, in, into your sort of equation, um, uh, Peter, when you think about ebooks, like this opportunity is going to, you know, double or triple in size in the next few years? Yeah, definitely. I've been paying a lot of attention actually to what this. Uh, there's a, a writer out there called J.A. Conrath. He gets linked quite a lot. Um, he comes up with some quite incisive blog posts on the whole ebook versus print book, you know, um, self-publishing thing on uh, Hacker News. And you know, he's making. He's he just he writes uh, like thriller novels on the Kindle and sells them for like ninety nine cents or something, like r- a really small amount. And he sells thousands of them, and he's just built it up over years. And now he's making thousands of dollars a month from doing that. So you know, but not just that's the general side of the market. The tech side of the market, I think, actually is. Um, you know, definitely more receptive to things like PDFs because, you know, a lot of us are toting things like iPads and so on. Um, but not just that. Some of us, you know, are quite familiar with reading on the screen as well and don't mind it, especially for something that's short. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to read like a you know a novel on the screen, but if it's uh, like a workbook or, a, you know, a PDF with programming, you know, bits of code in it, I might want to copy and paste. Uh, more than happy with the screen for that. So I think the ebook is definitely going to be 90% of it. Do you think there's a future where someone like John Grisham could become like a world-renowned author uh, and just just purely be self-published through e-medium? Yeah, te- definitely. Um, I think you know Conrad and a lot of the people that he links to other authors that he's shown you know have done the same thing. Uh, you know, prove that. And uh, you know, even Stephen King managed to kind of slightly prove that back. I think it's about ten years ago now. He ran an experiment where he was like giving up. Um, chapters of a, a new book he was writing for free on his website um, but you kind of like were enticed to donate a dollar and I think it was like if over 50% of people who downloaded it donated a dollar he'd keep doing a chapter um, and that ran for quite some time so you know I think he proved that you can do these kind of experiments and uh, you know actually make it work and you know that was then but now it's a totally different ball game. 
Yeah, now it just seems like there's so much more opportunity and if you want to build a presence and spend the time in investing in sort of, I guess, building your, your brand so that when you do publish something, you have a ready audience. Um, and now with, you, you know, talk about with all the tools there are to create ebooks and with e-readers and all that kind of, all those kinds of things, it just seems like the opportunity is there. Now it's just about actually going out and doing it. That's what I'm pretty much focused on, yeah. A big part of it's to do with frictionless purchasing. So there's there's a lot of systems that you can just click a button and buy something without having to add any kind of credit card details like the App Store and Amazon, just kind of one-click purchasing. I think that the more that proliferates, the better the content sale will be as well. Yeah, it's very tempting just to buy something. Yeah. So uh, a kind of a, you know, I guess a related topic, it was a, there was an interesting uh, post on Hacker News, where it was, I guess it was just a question, and it was entitled, Solo Founders, How Do You Stay Emotionally Efficient? Um and, you know, all, I guess all four of us are solo founders for the most part, and we all work for ourselves, we all work from home, we all have our, our own projects. So maybe I'll start with you, Gabe, since uh, you've been quiet for a little bit, is how do you stay sort of focused <laughs> and and uh, stay positive and optimistic working on uh, DuckDuckGo as opposed to just getting frustrated and giving up or, or something? First of all, I saw your email with that with that link, and I was like, "Wow, I hadn't seen that link." And I right. clicked on it, and it was from like 995 days ago. Was it really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you were just like, "Yeah, I just saw this," and I was just. That's Jason was, time. That's, I'm, that's a little, how, I'm a little slow out of the gate. That's how <laughs> yeah. up to date Jason is. So, guys, there's this new thing that's come out. It's called the Apple II, and I'm just curious. What do you guys think? Is <laughs> an opportunity there? <laughs> Well, it's it's a, a topic, <laughs> yeah, it is a good topic. I mean, I, I, I mean, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in the same boat where you, where they have jobs and they're trying to push something out uh, on the weekends or, on the, or on, in the evenings and, um, you know, or even if they're full time. I mean, just how do you stay, um, I guess, psychologically resilient? I mean, I think that's probably the the best criticism against single founders is that you know, it's easier to fail on the downside. And I know you've talked about it before, but like, um, so like I, I personally, maybe it's a personality thing, but I'm generally just very sort of optimistic to the point where, um, my wife doesn't think it's practical. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Um, I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) But, um, I, I guess I, I wrote one post on this a while ago because trying to think about it more logically about when you should you know think about maybe moving on or not on various projects. And I, I sort of look at it now as if you can see a spark of engagement or you can see that what you're doing is actually impacting in a useful way, albeit small, but you can measure or see some kind of usefulness, then that provides me with the motivation to move, continue to move forward. Right. Well, what about you, Peter? Yeah, I think um, without, without going into too much detail about this, um, you know, I've sort of been through the mill with a lot of this stuff. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the things I've really focused on nailing as, uh, you know, not just being a solo founder of different things, but as just being someone who works on their own so much. Um, you know, you really do need to keep uh, aspects of sort of you know, uh, your mental health in check. And it can be very easy to, you know, let them uh, slip slide. And, you know, I've definitely become a, a significantly more optimistic person as the years have gone by but you know i've had to deal with quite a lot of things just to get to that point and it's you know been a lot of hard work and it uh, is still something i have to keep you know good tabs on do you, how important is it do you think um and i this is probably i guess uh, a leading question because the answer is i think i know the answer but how important do you think it is working on something that you're really excited about versus working on something you think just has some that you think is 
relatively interesting, somewhat interesting, and has profit opportunity. Okay, why don't um, you? In, or Peter, whoever. Go, Peter. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I was, I was just taking it because I was the last one talking, but um, yeah, no, I think that is important and it has a big effect, but at the end of the day, there could be things that are sort of going on in your mind or whatnot, where even, you know, working on the, the greatest thing in the world doesn't have an effect. And, you know, I think they've sort of shown that people sort of often have a, a default level of kind of happiness and um, mental health. And even if, you know, something really good happens, it's pretty much a temporary blip. So if I, you know, let's say a, a really cool fad or whatever comes along and I think I can, you know, make a good impact in this really quick, um, you know, it might be something that, and I've seen people do this, like they'll plug away at something for like two or three weeks. And then even though they were interested in it, now the kind of the buzz has worn off from that. Um, you know, one thing you can do is you can try and pick only very small projects to work on. But if you're, you know, running like a search engine like Gabriel is and so on, you know, you can't, you'd have to split up what you're doing into tiny, little tiny projects rather than the, the whole one big thing. So that can be a problem with some people. I almost think that it's a, a bad thing. This is my new, my new understanding since re-engaging with Plugio. So Plugio was, wasn't the most, the, the thing that I was the most passionate about in the world. But re-engaging with it from a, a strictly business point of view and realizing that I it, I really do need to work on this to make money, it, it kind of focuses me on the, on the real problem, which is the kind of building a bootstrap business that can make money. And I think that if you are focused on something that you're really passionate about, it can lead you down all sorts of different garden paths that just don't result in you making money. So it's just you rationalizing working on cool stuff as opposed to doing what needs to get done to make to make the company profitable. And and that's been a, an issue for me for my, my whole kind of working career. It's the reason why I've never got anything profitable. And I think I know a lot of developers um, who, who are in the same situation. And I would say that maybe Jason is as well. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> maybe Jason is in that same situation as well. Because, well, uh, okay, mm, well, why is that? Well, because you, you, know, you, you do repeatedly say how cool the problem is um, mm -hmm. and how much you love the problem. But... Pragmatically speaking, that thing needs to just get out the door and happen. That's true. That's true. I don't think the I don't think that's the reason though. The reason is that we just took on a really big problem. And I'm only working right. on it at time. So that, I mean, that's a whole nother you know question of you know, using people will say not to do that because it's too risky. I mean, but again, a lot of us pick and choose our battles, and we go after things. We say, okay, these other. Not everything I'm doing about it is risky, but some of the things are risky. So, for instance, Gabe is going after Google on a search engine, and most people would say that's crazy, right? Gabe has done startups. He, he advises and invests in startups, so he understands what are risky propositions and what aren't, and he's going after this one anyway. Um, and he's probably just said, right, well, this is the one thing about it that I'm going to do, and maybe it's one of the primary characterizations, but you're going to do it anyway. I mean, Gabe, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I've had a lot of different experiences with this particular issue, and um, and so I think there are several angles to it. Like my, my last company, I wasn't particularly interested in or passionate about in what it was, um, but I got really passionate about this particular aspect of it, which was this like the exponential growth piece. And so I, I spent all my time working on that, and you know that sort of made the company. Although I probably also heard it its potential too because I wasn't thinking of that strategically. And then more recently before right before DuckDuckGo, I had started a bunch of different projects and then eventually settled on that one. But there were others that I was way less passionate about. I'm like I'm super passionate about DuckDuckGo, but I was also involved in this photo site and this um golf site and neither of which I was too into. And there's a 
it was a problem. There was a problem with that, which I saw, which is that I could see the path to it being successful, but it would require a lot of work that I just really wasn't interested in, you know, and it would, I would have just had to slog through it and I just wasn't motivated. So you, but so you knew you were going to go after something that was a much bigger, bigger project. I mean, it wasn't like if, like if somebody came up to you and told you they were going to build a search engine, you, you probably wouldn't have invested in them. Would you have? Um, well, you see, I, it's different, right? So I peeled off, ended up peeling off a piece where I didn't have to spend millions of dollars of capital to try to make something happen. Like my, I, I tried to simplify the problem into a way that, um, theoretically it was investable. I mean, I didn't take any money, but, um, I theoretically would have invested in it if, if they showed some amount of initial kind of traction. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's still a fairly big project compared. I mean, because you, you said yourself that you were always looking out for opportunities where you could see the, I guess, the viral aspect to it was sort of embedded into the into the original con to the basic concept, which is how Absolutely. names was it names database? Is that what it was yep. called? Yep. Uh, succeeded. And where DuckDuckGo doesn't really have that to it, right? Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. So I mean, there there's certainly crazier aspects of it, and th this one is is almost purely motivated by passion. So it's sort of the opposite, right? Like I I'm just super interested in the whole thing. Yeah. So I mean, I'm this I'm with I'm with uh, Gabe on this one. I mean, I knew Epic Night was a big problem, and I was attracted to it because it was a big problem. And I guess I have a lot of confidence in myself and a lot of optimism, and I'm willing to go after big hard problems. But part of me is that. I just what I, what's happening in the past is I've worked on problems that I felt were weren't really something that I wanted to spend years and years on, and I and I, and I get into it a couple of years and I go I can't believe I'm spending years of my life working on this thing. It just seems like a waste of my time, and that's one of the reasons I went after Epic Night because I feel like this is not going to be a waste of time because if I can make this thing work, it's going to be really cool and it's going to be interesting and there's a lot of interesting stuff to it. So I mean, Gabe, do you think about it in terms of that? Yeah, I mean, because I'm already several years into DuckDuckGo, and I I could just see myself doing it indefinitely. You know, like I I completely agree with that. Right. So, Justin, you lose. Uh, next round. <laughs> 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 no, I'm, I just you know, like I think there's there's like as we've discovered on the show, there's many ways to uh, skin a cat. Yeah. And there's a ton of ways to fail. And really what happens, I think, is it just depends on the person, their context, what they want to do, what their strengths and weaknesses are, both as a, from a skill base and also from a personality perspective. And just as long as they know going in what the risks are. Like, you know, if you know you're going into a project that you don't care that much about, but you know it can make money, then you go, okay, I know I may not have the passion to sustain this, so it's better make some money, and the money and the profitability and the excitement of building a business will sustain me. And vice versa, if you're like, I know this is going to be a big project, it may not make a money, money right away, but it's such an interesting problem that I can stick with it, and I think that'll be enough. But, well, I mean, at least you don't suffer from the, the big problem, which is basically switching from one project to another, which a lot of developers suffer from. You know, it's just, it's just going after the latest thing. Peter uh, spoke about this earlier, where you start work on a project and then you kind of work on it for a few weeks and then a few months later you're like, oh God, I'm not really interested in that anymore. And right. a lot of people have that. Whereas you, you know, you've got this, you've got App Ignite and you're going to stick with that. So that's, and you have been sticking with that. You've proven that. There's been a few things that have kind of caught your attention. Yeah, I got <laughs> sucked into you. I got sucked into the uh, quantifier, built like an AI engine for yeah. But then I worked on it for like a week or two and I realized that was a complete distraction. As cool and as interesting as it was, it was just yeah, not the best way to spend my time. So, 
dis- distractions can definitely kill a business. <laughs> and I've seen that happen a lot. Okay, let's here. Here's another even another good segue. Okay, so uh, another post that I thought was worth discussing was the one entitled "Let's End the Myth That Ideas Are Worthless." And the the guy's main point is that you know there, these memes catch on in sort of the startup world and in the valley. And one of the memes, in addition to minimum viable product and pivoting and all these kinds of things, is that ideas are worthless, execution is everything. And his feeling is that, look, ideas are important. And if you're pivoting, you better be pivoting to a good idea. And I'd be curious what what your respective thoughts are on the value of ideas. Are they worthless and it's all about execution? Are ideas really important that there are good ideas? I wrote a post on this one in particular that I I probably believe more than almost say on my other posts because this this myth annoys me to no end actually <laughs> and I think it's just too black and white and you know there are different types of ideas and to, just to put it absolute to rest you can look at extremes and I think there are what I was calling powder keg ideas there's probably you know ten of these a year that instantly blow up and go viral like the second they get on the internet. Right. That was a good idea <laughs> in and of right. itself, you know? <laughs> right. So I think that should put it to rest. Now, the problem is most ideas for businesses are not that. They're not product egg ideas. They're usually what I would call movement ideas where you have to, like, get a movement of followers, you know, behind you to start making money. And um, and to that, I would say also the idea is important, you know? I mean, for you to amass a movement, you're going to have to find – followers who care about what you're doing and for that to happen you have to have a compelling idea to some degree yeah and you know one thing i'll add is i i can't remember um i read an article by it might have been the guy who wrote who does the four four hour work week what's his name i'm blanking tim ferris tim ferris, tim yeah. ferris. and i think he wrote a piece for um uh was it uh do more faster and in the article he said ideas are important otherwise there'd be a market forum and, and, and since there is no market for ideas, ideas are inherently useless. But when you think about the way – and initially I read that, I'm like, oh, okay, that's a good point. But the more I thought about it, I was like, well, listen, I mean, it's not that they're worthless. It's just that there's something that you can't really protect or, or, or uh, trade that easily. So it, it may not be so much that there's no market for them because there, is, there are markets for patents, for instance, and there are markets for copy, copyrights. But um, I don't know. I mean – so yeah, I've always thought that was silly because yeah, like you said, there are markets for ideas and patents and stuff. And more to the point, it reminds me of you could say the same thing about like stock algorithms and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, why aren't there markets for those? Because the people who have them keep them to themselves. You know, if you have a good, compelling powder keg idea, you do it. You don't trade it, it. You know, right? But a lot of the time, I mean, uh, I've I've had the experience a lot where a friend's come up to me and said, "Hey, I've got this idea. I've got this idea." And they just don't, they're so incredibly protective and secretive about it. And they tell me this idea and I'm like, huh? That's like useless. I mean, no one's going to even understand that, what you just said. And people do have a tendency to get extremely protective over ideas when probably they'd just be better off not being protective and just talking it through with people, brainstorming and improving it. Well, yeah, well, that's the interesting aspect of it is how protective of a good idea should you be? I, I think that's where I'm probably giving the wrong advice here because I think you should do exactly what Justin said. I, I think it's so rare to get one of these ideas that take off on it themselves, but I think that their existence shows that ideas can be valuable. But I, I generally agree with with Justin there. You should, I think, being stealth is generally dumb, and you should get try to get people to help and get feedback. You know, because your initial idea is probably not going to be that exactly what's going to make it happen. 
Yeah, and the other thing about it is I always feel like writing a blog post about this, um, which is that I'll tell you my idea because you're not going to do it anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, because until it's proven, because first of all, a couple things. I mean, one, usually requires a lot of work. To, even for a great idea to become successful, it usually takes a fair amount of work and expertise, right? So you're, you're And only 1% of the population could, could kind of give a crap about being an entrepreneur. In fact, probably less, like right. 0.1% of the population. So of all the people that you tell your idea to, very few well, of them have to get up and go to actually do it. Well, let's say they even put it on Hacker News, right? I mean, first of all, there's a lot of people who read Hacker News who really by themselves couldn't build something, right? A lot of them are, they can do a piece of it. They could do it as part of a team. There's a lot of people who read it, they're, they're full-time programmers or something elsewhere, and, and they, they're interested in Hacker News because of the technology, or they like reading about stars. But they're not, it's not a bunch of, not everyone there is an entrepreneur, especially let's say a, a person who could do it all, everything themselves the other thing is a lot of people are fully engaged in other ideas right like i hear people tell me good ideas all the time i'm like well i don't i mean you know i'm not gonna i got my own stuff right i mean i'm sure it's a good idea but i like my idea and i think people feel that as well and um so i think but the other thing is yeah it just even if i even i go out there and i say hey, i have this great idea i'll tell everybody people are just like they either can't they don't have time for it they're working on their own thing they don't have the capability or because it hasn't demonstrated that it's a great idea yet it hasn't made any money because things look back after the fact and go oh you know groupon was obviously a good idea beforehand people might not quite realize it's a great idea until it's demonstrated to them later i think one thing that a lot of these um blog posts miss and perhaps even this discussion is that you know, a lot of people, especially technical people, think that there's kind of a, an objective sense of good and bad and great and not good and so on in this area. You know, like you t you say something is a great idea or a good idea, but it's very subjective. And I think that's the problem with ideas is that, you know, they are very subjective. They're not an objective thing you can measure. They're not like theories that you can test um, in a very precise way. Um, you know, like you take something like chat roulette. Like if you just described what chat roulette was to someone two or three years ago, it'd be like, yeah, okay, that's just kind of lame um, or whatever. Or, you know, like a, a film like Pulp Fiction, you know, you, you take the plot line of Pulp Fiction and, you know, it just makes no sense. The fact that uh, the way it's put together made it a good story, um, you know, and now we all love it. Um, so I think that's the thing about ideas is that they can sound kind of lame to us to start with because we're looking at it from our point of view. Um, but then once someone inter um, you know, interprets it and implements it in the, the right way, um, we then suddenly see what a great idea it was. Um, but the idea hasn't actually changed from the pre-implementation to the post-implementation, just our viewpoint of it has based upon its success or failure. And, and some ideas, that's it. Here's, here's a good idea, cars that can drive themselves. That would just be awesome. It makes so much money, right? But, Sign me up. <laughs> but the thing about it is, <laughs> to make that happen is incredibly difficult, right? So a, a, a lot of good ideas are just Google's working on that one, right? I mean, right, right. Yeah, that's why I pick it up. Yeah, Tesla yeah. had that with the electric car. What do you mean? Because they, they're not doing cars that drive themselves. They're just doing. You mean? Oh no, no. I mean, like that problem with the idea is that you know, uh, electric cars. A few years ago, almost anyone with any sense kind of thought, "Oh, that's kind of lame." Like it's like it will happen, but it's kind of a lame sort of you know uh, granola eating kind of idea. But then once Tesla kind of produced that, you know, that vehicle, and it's really cool and sexy and so on, like. You know, someone like Jason Calacanis wouldn't have bought an electric car that was around five years ago, whereas he's bought that, and suddenly we think it's a great idea. So I think that's just an example of where, like you say, the cars that can drive themselves. You know, yep. at some point that might seem a bit lame, but once someone comes in and nails it and has a perfect implementation, we're going to say, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, yeah. But perhaps it wasn't to start with. 
And speaking of Teslas, I've actually driven in one, and I can tell you it was a great idea <laughs> for riding in that thing. <laughs> the uh, the investor in um, a friend of mine who invested in Prezo, a guy named Fez Kayam, um, you know, and he sold his company in Motorola back during the internet bubble and, you know, obviously made reams of money so he can buy a toy like that. And uh, I can tell you, after driving that thing, you're like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever been in. I mean, it's like head-snapping f- acceleration, like 0 to 60, like 3 seconds. It makes zero sound. It looks like a Ferrari. You know, it makes no pollution. It's just unbelievable. So, yeah, that was a great idea through execution, for sure. So now they're going to send you a car. <laughs> I hope so. Tesla, we need a sponsor and or a new car, whichever. <laughs> um so let's. Uh, I, I got an, a, a question for you guys. Um, a, 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 several of our listeners have asked us to kind of enumerate the tools that we use, and I thought it might be fun with you guys on to kind of talk about what tools you guys use to uh, write code, monitor your servers, deploy stuff. Um, I don't know. We can just kind of go around the table and, and see what everybody uses or or everything. So uh, I don't know, uh, Gabe. Why don't we start with you? Sure. I'm. I'm pretty. Um... I don't know what you would call it, but not. I don't use that many things. I still um, write most of my code over SSH connected to a server through Putty using Emacs. Really? Um, I actually write longhand and I mail it. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally what I do, though. <laughs> right. right. SSH and Putty. And so yep. what kind of editor do you use? Emacs within Emacs. the server. Oh, Emacs. Okay, yeah. Emacs. Okay. I don't have X on or anything. I do just... you have Do you have any kind of tabbing between documents, or do you only ever have one document open at once? I have a lot of putty windows open, but I generally only look at one at once, and then I have a bunch of others that tail a bunch of logs and stuff. And you use Perl, right? Yep. You're the last people using Perl, huh? <laughs> the lone holdout. <laughs> but it works though, right? So, you know, yeah. probably super fast. I feel vindicated because, you know, Blecko, it's a new search engine that came out and they're using Perl too. So at Sweet. least they, they have a lot of money behind them and they still decided to use Perl. Yeah, we see it. It, it ain't the shoes, it's the player, right? <laughs> a good coder can make anything uh, in, in any any of the big languages. You, so, say, you say that like as if Perl isn't the best language in the world for text processing. Well, I'm just I saying lo- that I love Perl. I mean, I'm just saying it's a better app. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that people, you know, a lot of other people, oh, you should be using, or um, you know, Python, or you should be using, you know, Ruby or whatever the the latest stuff is. And you know, a lot of people, you know, things like you know, Perl takes a lot of crap. PHP takes a lot of crap. I mean, all these languages that were big five years ago or ten years ago because of you know, they're languages that have nice new features and there's a big movement behind them. Get take a lot of crap, but. You know. I love the way that uh, Ruby people are thought of as like experimental and open-minded, but yet PHP people are closed-minded. But when PHP came out, they were the experimental and open-minded. So why aren't they still considered experimental and open-minded? Hey, Justin, you're dry, you're 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 killing the. We got to go around the table first. But let's get into that in a minute because that's a nice war. We can start a nice point. Very good. So well, let me show, before, before we move on to Peter, uh, Gabe. So you use Emacs, and what are you? Are you on a what kind of a machine are you using? I, my desktop is Windows 7, and then my server is run FreeBSD. So with Windows 7, are you on, like a, you're on a desktop or are you on a laptop? I am on a desktop. I have three 28-inch monitors in front of me. Three 28-inch monitors? <laughs> yeah. That's like 24 minority report or something. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I have two vertical and then one horizontal in the center. Are they all the same size, like the same brand, or do you have like all different sizes with different resolutions? Same brand, Hans G., I bought off Amazon and Costco pretty cheaply. Can you control your whole house via your computer? Like make the curtains <laughs> go up and down, things like I that. I wish. I can control the music. <laughs> <laughs> 
so do you, what do you do for debugging? I mean, do you have like a debugger or stepping through code or are you just you print a console kind of stuff? I print a console kind of stuff, a Warren nice. and Perl. Well, I used to, because it's funny, because Justin called me up, uh, was it two days ago yesterday? And, yeah. and, 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 and he was like, how the hell do you, you use Firebug? I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> no, I didn't say how you use Firebug. I said, how do you start a debugging session in Firebug? Right, okay. Because you, you had never you never use a watch window or use breakpoints. No, I had, but I'd just forgotten. It was a long time ago. And what I was doing was I was clicking on the white space and wondering why my breakpoint wasn't actually stopping. On a non-executable line. Uh, yeah, yeah, on a non-executable line, yeah, basically. But, 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 in, but in effect, though, you were debugging JavaScript using just uh, console writes, which is the yeah, same thing, right? And, and which is what I do when I do PHP because I, you know, I, I just, whatever. I mean, I, it, it's, it's, it's less efficient than if I was debugging using Firebug or, or Chrome, but, you know, it works. And it's funny, and one thing I told Justin, because Justin, we were kind of, I was kind of making fun of him, but at the same time I said, listen, when I was reading Coders at Work, it's like two-thirds of like these super guru coders that's how they debug. They just do console writes or printouts. They don't use some, you know, debugger where you're walking, you know, looking at the stack and stepping through and looking at watch windows and stuff. So well, you, well, you were making fun of me, and and of course you only just started using version control like last month. I, well, I'll use any opportunity to make fun of you as I can. So. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> I'm not saying, but uh, okay. And, and do you, what version control system do you use? I use Git, although I, I didn't use version control for a long time, too. I actually use Firebug, and I've never done those breakpoints things ever. I also do what Justin does and just print to the console. Well, In fact, really, I used to only recently did I even start printing to the console. I used to just do a, a JavaScript alert windows. <laughs> oh, so, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, because well, he, he's probably not building stuff that's quite as, as rich as, as something like Prezo, right? So Prezo is a very very rich internet app and you know that full level debugging would be much more helpful yeah, well, than alerts. Be, well, well before before firebug came out i mean i and i was building prezo before there was a firebug and there was vankman which kind of semi worked and then i had to debug on ie which didn't have a, a real uh, developer integrated oh, developer God, at the time IE so i was using sucked. alert windows so I, i've recently moved from alert to the print and console because my stuff has gotten it, it got too complicated for alert <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so well, what moved you to Git? Um, I was going to work with someone, and they were like, how do I work with you? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, just zip it up and email it to me, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they were like, I'm on GitHub. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll work and change it all over to that. Which, Command which, line or, or, front, or client? Command line, totally. Okay. Yeah, I just started using Git like a week or two ago, um, and I still barely know how to use it. I mean, I know like eight commands or something, um, but it's pretty it's pretty cool. Although I have to say, it doesn't do everything as automatically as you might expect. You have to, at least as much as at least as much as I expected. But it is. I couldn't get this to work on FreeBSD, but I'm told the Git flow stuff makes it a lot more flowy, <laughs> if you will. See, if I figured that if if, if, that. if I oh Git flow, Git flowy or Git flow. Git flow. It's like a set of commands that run on, it's sort of like shortcuts that run on top of Git and you can sort of like quickly check out a new feature branch or release branch and then check it back in. Huh. See, I, one thing I thought it would do, I, I mean, you know, I don't know why I thought this or may, maybe it does do this if you know what you're doing, but if I'm working on a file and someone else is working on a file and we, and we both do, uh, and we both commit it, it has. I would figure it would do like an auto merge or something, but it doesn't. You have to go and resolve it. No, no, it, it does do an auto merge. It's only it's only on the rare occasions where you work on the exact same uh, function within the same braces. 
Is that right? Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because that's what happened to us. And I'm like, well, come on. I mean, I thought this was the big selling point. And like already now it's like you can't add and you can't stage and you got to resolve all this crap. And it's like, give me all these problems. I'm like, this sucks. No, that, that, that happens very rarely. And, and unless you decide, because the, remember, you, you as humans can make a decision to work on the same file and the same line of the file or not. <laughs> and generally speaking, yeah. you, should, you should kind of go, no, I'm not going, you know, oh, you work on that file. I'll work on this file. You can trip yourself up pretty easily, too, if you are working on your laptop and, say, another computer and you don't, you know, commit yourself back. And you can easily get into a merge situation there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because that's that's OK. So that's what I ran into and I was found a kind of routine. I finally resolved it. Well, last question. So why do you use command line as opposed to, say, like tortoise git or something? Uh, mainly because I, I program everything on the server. So there's there's nothing I'm ever using locally on my computer. You program everything on the server. Oh, so you don't have a local running version of any of the server software. Everything is kind of... I do in a VM, but I don't have X on it, and I don't... I just use all command line stuff. Do you have staging and live uh, development environments, or do you just... Yeah, I have, a dev, I have some dev environments, a staging environment, and then a live environment. How, how, do, you, how do you push stuff live? Is there like a, a script where you click a button and it just pushes it live, or... How do you it's not it completely automated yet. I... I um, I go to the server and I pull down the latest stuff and then I, I can hop processes. Everything's modularized, so I can um, hop that process and it'll reload the new code without any downtime. How do you deal with database versioning across those platforms? Schema, schema versioning? I'd hardly ever change the schema of the sort of core database, but it, it's relatively easy. You just sort of uh, reload a new table and then switch over to it. Cool. And what about monitoring software for your servers? I use MRTG. Um, and MR then it's a sort of old school thing that draws these green and blue graphs. You might have seen them at some point. Right. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just saying right. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it, was, it was used a lot, a lot for routers and stuff like that, but you can actually send any kind of... Um, messages to it and it'll graph you know like anything you want and then i also use um i i have a pingdom account so it it pings a bunch of things will send me text messages something went down and then i also wrote my own monitoring some perl scripts that that basically do exactly what pingdom does just from a you know for my own sanity right right so mo there, moving on to peter yeah what what, here, what peter, tools what you got are you yeah, using what tools do you too? use but, yeah, there's, there's actually some parallels here with Gabe. Um, I was actually a, a Windows-based uh, Perl developer up until about 2005, um, which when I was kind of sucked into the whole Ruby world and uh, pretty much have morphed in the the time in between into a very typical Ruby hipster, um, <laughs> basically entirely Macs everywhere coming out <laughs> my ears. I have Macs that Do I can barely use. Do you have skateboard stickers on your Macs? No, I don't do. I don't go for stickers. Um, uh, I don't oh. like to. Uh, yeah, I, I want to uh, ruin my uh, shiny, beautiful Macs with uh, stickers. Unfortunately, um, but yeah, no, so I've kind of gone in that direction, and I think that's a common way a lot of uh, Rubyists have gone um, with the whole kind of the the text mate kind of thing, and um, you know. And you were saying earlier about PHP takes a lot of crap. Rubyists take a lot of crap now as well, um, just because it's kind of that uh, turning phase. You know, people are looking at other things now, like Node and so on. Um, right. But yeah, so it's pretty much a Mac, in, entirely a Mac setup. Um, although all of my stuff, um, 
you know, servers and things are all Linux, and Linux is definitely the, the thing that I'm more interested in as an operating system. Uh, I merely use the Mac just because it makes a lot more sense for a lot of the client-based stuff that I'm doing. Like I do a lot of uh, work in Logic and ScreenFlow, and there's just you know, people say that there's you know parallel things in uh, Linux, but they're just not slick enough for me. I just like an easy life um, on that kind of stuff. Uh, but I do have. Linux VMs running under VMware that I, um, you know, have mounted, and I can do my, you know, development work straight onto them. Uh, just because I'm not too keen with um, the Mac's kind of BSD-ness, um, I'm a bit more of a, a Linux uh, beard, I guess. Um, but yeah, and I'm using Git as well. Um, been using that for a while now um, with GitHub, and absolutely love that to pieces. Not had any problems with that. Um, something that hasn't been mentioned so far is Dropbox. I absolutely love Dropbox, um, just as a way of syncing up work yeah. between all of my different machines. Um, and you know, you guys were talking about debugging and stuff, and uh, I think that was more from a JavaScript point of view. Um, in the Ruby world, I've I'm kind of um, you know sort of heavily into the whole test-driven development thing. So you know, debugging has a diff- entirely different you know, way of approaching it on Ruby if you're doing that kind of stuff and you know, I know there's, uh, you know, there is unit testing stuff on JavaScript, but it doesn't seem to get as much use as perhaps it should do. Um, I think, you know, there's pr- perhaps some room to uh, teach uh, teach the world about how to do that. But um, yeah, so a pretty standard stack for a Rubyist, I'd say. And you said you're using texting. Do you have like a debugger of any kind? Do you use? No, I don't. I don't use debuggers. Do you just I'm pretty much. Um, yeah, sometimes. Um, although I, what I usually try and do is I'll refactor and um, you know work something into a test and then just make the test more atomic. So um, I'll take that approach on it. But uh, yeah, sometimes I, f- I fall back to the uh, the printing stuff out, which um, you know is particularly good if you want to print a whole sort of a complex object out to the screen. That can be quite handy. Are your right. servers running locally, or do you have VPS VPS is running? Um, I used to have like dead. Because I was running um, Feed Digest and you know some really heavy stuff, which actually was all based on Perl. Uh, but as, as things have moved on and computers have got quicker, I can now rely on VPSs, uh, which I have a few here and there. But I think Linode is probably the, the main place I have those, and they're all running Linux as well. How about you, Gabriel? Where, where's your service? Oh, I think we asked you last time, and there was a like a reason why you couldn't say. Um. Okay, I'll stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way: Are they are they locally or are they external? Um, they, I have both. I have, uh, some on Amazon and some that I run my own servers. You know what I think? I think the the big secret we're going to find out is that all your servers are actually being hosted inside Google. <laughs> he's, he's, he's somehow rooted into their server farm and taking it's over. Being, it's like, it's like the Google, the Google janitor, like <laughs> basically smuggled a bunch of Gabriel's PCs in there and right. has them running in the, in the janitor closet. All right. So Justin, your turn. What's your, uh, what's your tool set? Well, I I used to be a, a PC guy, um, and as you know, uh, both yourself and myself have moved over to Mac. I my favorite editor in the world is um, Ultra Edit on the PC, and they've ported it to the Mac. But the problem is the latency is so huge. I I can type a sentence and pull my hands away from the keyboard, and like a second later, it's still typing out the characters. Why? I mean, so, is it is it is it you, they read it in Java or did they? I just have no idea why. Uh, to me, that would have been the absolutely first thing you would have sorted out. So they've given all of this amazing functionality, but the basic aspect of using it is just like it just sucks. Um, so I hope that they, I hope really hope that they fix that. Um, but in the meantime, I'm I've begun to like TextMate. I mean, it's nowhere near as good as Ultra Edit in terms of functionality and just uh, customization. But TextMate's what I use at, at least when I 
click the button, it, it appears on the screen, you know. Um, so I develop everything locally. Um, so I have like an Apache server running and I have uh, MySQL running and basically uh, hook into Beanstalk, uh, which is a subversion hosting company. Mm -hmm. And they have this great auto-deployment system. So whenever I do a commit, it will auto-deploy auto to my staging server. And then if I want to, I can also uh, go up there and then click deploy to live. Although with Plugio, basically everything I commit just deploys directly to live. So I just develop locally, test it, really have a good old look at the code. Like as I'm reading through the code, I read through it very slowly. Every time I do a commit, I look through every little line, every piece of code. And I go, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I commit it and then it goes live. Okay. So um, that's pretty much me. But, well, okay. You don't use any debuggers. You print, a, you print to console i mean if it's php well here's here's the thing here's the thing i'm very methodical like i i don't i'm not i'm not, I'm not attacking you i'm not saying good and good i'm just saying so you don't you you don't have a debugger you don't step through you don't, you're not able to step through stuff i will actually actually i, I wasn't going to say that you were attacking me but what i, what I was going to say is i that, think i'm going to attack you now just okay, okay just, well i literally test every single line i uh, every line i code i i print out to screen what that it's doing what i think it's doing wow like well, every that, single line that seems like it take a lot of time well, but it means that I just create bug-free code first time around. So I mean, you could do the same thing if you just step through your code, and you probably be write, write it ten times faster. Because I, I, I don't think so. Because what happens is you you write a function with um, twenty different lines of code. You then you then open up the debugger. You then step through it, and then you're like, okay, what you know, what's happening? What's happening? Whereas if you just Alt Tab between the browser and um, the the editor, you can just get through it so much faster. That's just my opinion. What are you talking my, about? My you, just hit, you just hit next, and it shows you each line of code, and it shows you all the variables are equal to. You get all the globals, all the locals. This what this variable is. Bang, 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 bang. You're, you're having to manually print everything out, which you can just look at them in the debugger window. Yeah, but, but you're also having to think about 20 lines of code rather than one. No, you don't. You just look at whatever line is broken on. I mean, you look at the values in that line. But what right. I'm saying, but right, what I'm saying is, <laughs> but what I'm saying, you want to write a line, you want to print out every line of code you write, you might get. All right, let's move what on. What I'm saying is, I only ever think of one line at a time, right? Okay. If, if, if you're debugging an entire function, you have to think of the entire function. Okay, next. So, do you, and you write everything on a MacBook Pro, you just have a little tiny screen, a 15 inch? Yep. Every little tiny screen. And, and you use Subversion, but you also use Git, you say. Yeah, Subversion and Git, but I use the. Um, the kind of visual editors rather than command line stuff. You use Smart Git? Smart Git, love it. And you use, well, what do you use for uh, Subversion? Uh, versions on the Mac. Versions, right. Because you didn't like Cornerstone. You were warning me Cornerstone. You like I just found the Cornerstone corrupted the, the repository too many times. Hmm, okay. And, uh, and, you, and you normally use PHP and uh, JavaScript are your two primary. Pretty much. So I use so I used to be a Windows guy until about two months ago, and I decided that when my six-year-old Windows machine finally died, um, I I decided I need to get a Mac because I wanted to um, potentially build iPhone, iPad apps, and I wanted to use Titanium. So and I and I couldn't I wouldn't be able to do that with uh, with a Windows machine. So I got the iMac, the 27-inch iMac, and I have to say, as a machine, as a physical physical machine, it's 
gorgeous. It's beautiful. Um, but it took me a couple months to get used to using the Mac, as we've talked about on the show. I mean, just the keyboard stuff and I don't know, just all the little things that are different. It's just frustrating. And I'm sure it'd be the same experience for a Mac person going to a Windows. It's just it's just different enough to be irritating. And then you have to find a whole new tool set. Everything is different. All your debuggers, your editors, your version control systems, your, your, your drawing programs, everything. So I use uh, Komodo Edit from Active State, which is a free editor. And it's, it's very much like TextMate, but I found that the, um, it, had, uh, it was a little more flexible in terms of um, what you could uh, do your, your syntax highlighting. And uh, like I said, it's, Komodo IDE is like 300 bucks, but if you just use the editor, which doesn't have debugging facilities, then um, it's free. And the reason I didn't use the IDE, is, aside from the $300, was that um, I was trying to get the PHP debugging, and it was like this 15-step process, and I just couldn't get it to work. And uh, on my JavaScript debugging, I use both the Chrome developer that um, it just comes with Chrome um, or, uh, and or Firebug. On Fire so I kind of go back and forth uh, for debugging the JavaScript. And uh, PHP, I just do step, I just, you know, print stuff out because there's no way to, easy way to debug it unless you use Eclipse. And I tried to use that and that just didn't work for me at all. And I don't know, what else? Um, did I skip over something? I use Cornerstone. No, I use uh, yeah, I use Cornerstone for my Subversion client, which I like. I didn't have any problems with that, unlike you, Justin. Right. And I just started using Git because I'm working with Uber, and they use Git, GitHub, and so I had to learn Git. And I'm just right now using all command line. And I may end up going and using a, a UI, but I figure I'll force myself to use a command line because it'll just kind of make me understand it a little better, I think. Um, and I and I can, you know, it's there's only a handful of commands that I seem to need to new need to use, uh, gen, you know, most days. And uh, I don't know. Did I forget anything, Justin? That's it. No, sounds good. And I used to, and I guess back, oh, and I'm also learning Python. Now I'm using Python for another project. And that's just, you know, I can use Komodo Edit because I can edit, you know, that'll syntax highlight any, um, you know, any language pretty much. And I just use command line to run uh, Python. So and printing stuff out um, to the console. And I, back in the day, before I went to the machine, I used to build all the desktop apps. You, all the desktop apps using, um, you know, Visual, uh, whether C Sharp. Net. I think our wives are going to really love this section. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Let's do something a little more uh, touchy-feely. Um, the number one habit of highly creative people. Did you guys have a chance to take a look at that one? Yeah, it was like solitude, I definitely looked right? At it. I remember it. <laughs> Yeah. So there's two things. I mean, one was it was like this. It was this dichotomy, right? So the first thing that is that you know the guy. One thing he did is he he went and uh, I guess either found snippets where these great thinkers or even more modern people who are creatives, you know, how they are m most creative. And it seemed like this dichotomy of like you have to have these big chunks of time where it's complete solitude, where you don't have people things interrupting you so you can sort of hear your own thoughts and really, really get deep in thought. But at the same time, you need to be interacting with other people in order to share and be exposed to new ideas that kind of throws you out of whatever rut you might, mental rut you might be in. Um, and I was wondering, do you guys, what do you guys do? Because, I mean, aside from Justin, I mean, we all have kids and we have wives and we all work at home. So there's a certain amount of chaos and insanity around us at all times. And what do you guys do to sort of get... Um, some peace and quiet to think and, and be creative. Whoever wants to go first. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could find some peace and quiet. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't really, personally. Wait, you just had a, you're, you're, is your wife pregnant? Or did you have, did you yep. have a new baby? May. She's going to be, uh, next one's coming in May. Okay, so you still have a little time before it, everything falls down. 
Because <laughs> you only have one. You have one daughter or one son. One son. We'll have two two boys. Wow. Okay. So your life is going to be like mine pretty soon. So as I have three, and it's insane. But uh, do you know what do you do? I mean, you, you schedule because I th- I think you talked about this a little bit in the last show, but maybe you could just could give us a little recap. How do you get time to when so you can work without being interrupted? I have a bunch of different techniques. <laughs> I tie everyone up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I uh, have a babysitter that comes sometimes, and I have a. I, I'm currently in the basement in the way back, and it's it's just totally quiet here. And then I, um, a few days a week, my wife wakes up early with Eli, and so I get time in the morning there, and then at night. Those are my main sort of quiet times, and also right. when he's napping. Right. All right. And because your wife is working, uh, she works full time. Mm-hmm. So yep. you're you're at home, and so you have to take care of uh, Eli when uh, when she's gone during the day. So you have to work sort of off hours in order to get any time. Yep. Hopefully that will change sometime soon. But yeah. Right. And what about you, Peter? We have the weirdest solution. Um, when I share this solution with people, they're like, you do what? <laughs> um, yeah, basically, um, my wife is not very good at without, with like lacking any sleep whatsoever. Um, it would be absolute nightmare. So sort of since day one, I've always uh, tried to sort of allow her to get as much sleep as possible and sort of, you know, for eight hours a night. So I've, uh, because I'm quite a night owl anyway, I've um, kind of gone into this weird schedule where I'll wake up like three or four in the afternoon um, and then I sort of, uh, you know, have the have the family dinner and all that sort of stuff, and uh, you know, put her to bed, and not not the wife, the uh, the daughter. Um, yeah, but then uh, you know, um, we usually like hang out for a couple of hours, or I might be working in the living room or whatever, and uh, you know, then she'll go to bed, and then usually I'll be up till sort of about six or seven. Um, depends on sort of how the uh, the baby's getting on, but um, sometimes I'll even end up getting her up, uh, get her up, you know, sort of watch TV or play or whatever for half an hour, and then my wife will get up and she's had a full night's sleep, and um, I can go to sleep for the uh, the remainder of the day. And um, my wife doesn't work uh, other than, of course, looking after uh, the child. She gave up work uh, to do this, um, and it seems to work. Uh, you know, as, as long as your sort of brain is as scrambled as mine, and you can you know, put up with being awake all night, then it's fine. But, you know, there is a bonus from my point of view is that because I'm in the UK, uh, being up at those hours means that I kind of, I'm sort of in sync with California, basically. So right. all the sort of people I'm talking with, like, you know, you guys and, um, you know, all those people that are on Twitter and all that sort of thing, I can converse with them in a very natural, you know, as if I'm living there kind of way almost. So it works out for us. Right. And what about on weekends? Do you, um, cause it, one thing I think is kind of interesting because I was just talking to, um, I won't name his name cause I don't want to get him in trouble with his, uh, <laughs> girlfriend or whatever wife is that, you know, if, when, when you're, when you're, when you're a, a software developer and you love to write code and a lot, when it comes to the weekend, are you able to get time to just say, Hey, I have an idea. I want to go spend three or four hours and just write some code or is your wife, you know, kind of looking at you like, what the hell are you doing? You know, it's weekend. We're not, you're not going to work. Yeah. Now being awake at, at, at nighttime kind of removes a lot of that problem since I'm awake when she's asleep. And, right. you know, I, I, I will often uh, perhaps sleep a bit less um, sort of perhaps have just four or five hours of sleep and wake up earlier. And, um, you know, so we can do uh, more sort of family stuff, but no, she's cool with it because she knows that, you know, the alternative is that she's going to be waking up at, you know, 
uh, whenever the, the kid's screaming in the middle of the night or whatever. And uh, the sleep is more important than necessarily, uh, you know, always having uh, lots and lots of time together. But from working at home anyway, we do have lots of time together. And it's not like, you know, uh, some people just dash out the door in the morning and spend, uh, you know, the whole day downtown and see, you know, get back even after their kids gone to sleep. So, you know, right. we think we're quite lucky even uh, just to have a few hours a day, you know, entirely to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Well, Justin, what about you? Uh, no, skip me. Don't skip worry you? about me. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Forget Justin. Don't talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Nobody talk to Justin. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I I was kind of tweeting at that moment, so I wasn't thinking about what we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm backgrounding you. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let's, uh, uh, you know, actually, I want to ask you something, Justin. So you have an update on Plugio, right? Why don't you give us a little update on what you've changed and what the results have been? What, what, which are you, are you still tweeting? Should we come back to you in a few minutes? Which, which part are you talking about specifically? <laughs> well, you, you, you're the, you've changed the journeys. You've changed the signups. You've had some new signups. You've changed the pricing stuff. You were showing me a couple days ago and I said, let's just save it for the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've had a, just a, a a total revamp of Plugio. Um, been thinking about it from a business perspective, and redone it. Um, targeted for business users, uh, created uh, well, let's say professionalized it, professionalized the affiliate program, and um, bumped the prices up from nine ninety five per week for for five for five Twitter accounts to nineteen ninety five, and then my my highest plan is forty nine ninety five now. Whereas before my highest plan was twenty nine ninety five, and then the other thing is that I had the thirty day free trial system before, where you just came to Plugio and you could get a thirty day free trial. You didn't need to enter any credit card details. You didn't need to go anywhere near any payment. And then at the end of the thirty days, it would say, "Okay, thanks for using Plugio. Now, um, now sign up via PayPal or whatever." So now what I'm doing is at the beginning, I'm capturing the credit card details. Although I don't have to capture the credit card details, I just send them send them to PayPal, and then the PayPal subscription allows for a 30-day free trial. And I just use very kind of careful messaging to, to explain that when they go through PayPal, they won't be charged anything at this point. They'll have a 30-day free trial. They can cancel any time they want. And um, in terms of PayPal subscriptions, since I've built the new system, I've seen basically a 450% increase. So that's wow. pretty... A 450% pretty, increase in what exactly? In, pay, in basically people taking out a PayPal subscription. So what, so now what, what it remains to be seen is how many of those people convert to paying customers after the 30-day free trial. But the difference is, is that they don't need to do anything to convert to a paying customer. Whereas in the old system, they had to sign up to PayPal. Right. So in a sense, it's kind of like pre-qualifying them, right? It's like when yeah. they're most excited about the product, maybe when they're most interested in, you know, they're, they're looking at it, they're investigating it and you're like, okay, look, you just got to give us your details now. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And to 450%. So have you come up with any sort of estimates of like what the... Well, speaking to Ruben be? from BidSketch, Ruben um, basically does the same thing. Okay. Um, although he has... Um, like a, a credit card form on his page, which I don't. I, I basically send people through this long-winded uh, uh, journey through PayPal. But he says that basically it's an 80% uh, or 70 to 80% of people hang around. Wow. Okay, so if that holds up true for you, what do you estimate your revenue increase will be, a monthly revenue increase over the next few months? Would you have like a target that what you think you can hit? I base, well, well, I'm setting a target of, I mean, maybe I'm shooting too high, but I'm setting it, at, at the moment I'm, it turns over about a thousand a month okay. from my from my previous hundred customers at the old at the old level. I'm setting my target of turning over ten thousand a month within six months. That would 10, be awesome. Ten thousand profit, actually. That would be awesome. 
you would be kicking butt then. You'd have some serious authority. Then, of course, what you say on startups, people will listen. As opposed to now, they don't even listen. <laughs> They're just, well, no, I'm just saying for us, we none of us have any real authority in the sense that neither of us have built a super successful startup on our own, right? Well, so, I was thinking that um, if, if, that, if I was able to, to move to that 10,000 monthly revenue, that, that, that then I would know certainly, I, I think it would be replicatable. And I think I would know the steps and I would, I would feel fairly confident in him writing an ebook on how that, how that happened. What's one thing is interesting. One thing that Justin and I have talked about uh, offline is how much the show has contributed to our, our sort of knowledge and understanding of how to make things work. Right. And Justin, you said that there's been a number of like key insights that you've gained or you've gleaned from a lot of our interviews oh, right? that have helped you kind of make the steps you needed to make. Yeah, definitely. It's, 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 it, this show has been like a PhD in building businesses online. Right. It's like the, that's a kind of a mastermind slash, I don't know, <laughs> inner, yeah, whatever. It's, it's, it's really, it's useful in that way. Well, that would be really cool. So, but do you have any short term? So you have a $10,000 in six months. Do you have any shorter term goals? Because we talked a little bit about that last show. I'm wondering well, if you not really. I'm just, I'm just playing around with the variables like, uh, so for example, I'm just, last week I had the 30 day free trial. This week I'm testing out a 14 day free trial. So I don't have any, I mean, what I'd really like to do is to get into more detailed A-B testing. But that yep. still kind of eludes me. I, I th- also don't think I have enough people. Um, okay. So that's kind of... There, there is another thing that I'm about to start doing, which I'm kind of excited about, is using LinkedIn for advertising. Okay. So because, because basically my, my market is business users. I have this feeling that if I can advertise in LinkedIn and drive people to a, a sign-up page where they, they would get a white paper about how to use Twitter for business in, re- in exchange for their email address then I could basically keep in touch with them and hopefully sell to them. Because actually, um, Rob, Rob Walling had uh, just, I read Rob Walling's ebook the other day, and there was one thing that he said in it that really resonated with me that I hadn't thought of before, which is that to sell to people online, they very rarely buy something for, from you the first time they visit your site. Right. Basically, they buy from you after going to it once, coming back, coming back, coming back, and kind of researching and thinking about it. So essentially, you're building a relationship with them. And so you make sales to people by building relationships. And I've only ever been thinking about it, you know, oh, these people come to this site and then they make a decision to buy or not. And I've never really thought, wow, building that emailing list is actually very important because you keep in someone's consciousness. Keeping in their right. consciousness is a very key thing to do. Yeah. Well, do you, uh, Peter or Gabe, do you guys do anything like that? Yeah, there's anything? actually a case study on the uh, 37 Signals blog, I think, a couple of days ago, the company that does that kind of stuff they call it educational marketing you know where they put up videos on youtube that are related to not the product specifically but the the topic and uh, you know that that gets their exposure and brings more people into the business and you know i guess it's a bit different for me um i'd be interested to see what gabe has to say but for me because i'm already everything i do is involving content already so i'm not um, you know, I'm not. I haven't got a service or something that I'm trying to sell, so it's a bit different for me. Everything is already content, and I just need more and more people to keep coming and checking it out. You, you're like the other half of the equation because you already have all the stuff that I need to do without the product for people to buy, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Gabe, what about you? I mean, do you do any? Have you thought about doing anything in that way, or does that not work for a DuckDuckGo type model? I think it can work. I mean, I sort of view my blog in that way, although it, it's not directly related to exactly the product even you know but it, it definitely has helped get in early adopter types i thought more on like uh picking niches like for li- doing content for librarians and, uh, and teachers and such um 
because I, I after talking to a bunch, I they've as a group feel underserved by Google, like and, and some some feel that they were like bait and switched in various ways, which I won't get into. But um, so I think there is an opportunity there, but I haven't really acted on it yet. Right. What, what right. do you think about keeping the concept of keeping in people's consciousness? Do you think that's that's an important marketing concept? That I definitely think, especially with a a product like DuckDuckGo. I mean, I, I've definitely seen that. Like, it, the more we're in the consciousness, just the more things that we can say present in the news, and it's just in people's mind when they're they're on comments and other blogs. I, I've seen this repeatedly over the past year. So, like, we'll have a sort of a, a bunch of press in various ways. And then the next few weeks we'll, we'll prop up on all these comments on like slash dot and Huffington post, and then it'll die down. And those, those comments won't be appearing as frequently. Right. So I guess the show, show we're getting toward the end of our time, but I want to ask you guys, you know, are there any, is there any topic that either of you has that you'd like really like to talk about, discuss? Nothing? No. <laughs> I don't have a topic, but there, there is something I'd, I'd really love to recommend to people. Um, and actually, it's not even a plug for me because I have absolutely no relationship to this whatsoever. Um, it's a book I bought um, last week. It's like 100 bucks. So it's a pretty serious uh, piece of work. Wow. But it's a, a book called The Linux Programming Interface by uh, Michael Kerisk. And it's basically like a 1,500-page kind of tome um, that has like, I think it's about like 90 chapters in it or something ridiculous. And it's uh, like a chapter about threads and a chapter about the file system and, you know, process creation. Every single tiny little itty-bitty thing that, you know, is involved in uh, not just Linux, but Unix in general. It covers a lot of stuff. Um, And I've just been reading that just nonstop, learning so much. Um, So anyone who's sort of interested in Linux or just Unix in general and wants to learn the nitty-gritty about, you know, how sockets work and all this kind of stuff, um, dive in there because it's it's the best book I've definitely come across in the last several years. Uh, Well, you know, okay, with with somebody like myself who's not a Linux guy, I mean, I... I can, you know, get around the command line and change directories and, you know, little little things, but I have to look up everything. I I don't do it enough to remember it. I mean, would would it be would that be the second book? Should I get like a like a sort of a, a Linux administration primer or could is it start off easy enough that even a non-Linux person could could understand it, get into it? No. This is pretty much for people who are, you know, working with um, Linux at kind of like a systems programming level. It's not a, a user guide by any okay. means. It's people who are interested in the the underpinnings of it, and uh, especially people who know C, for example. Um, you know, it's very useful. Um, you know, like if you're trying to put together like a really high uh, performance kind of daemon process, you know, write your own uh, server from scratch, all that kind of stuff. Where you really need to know this stuff and you know how the threading uh, works. And oh, it's, okay. it's at that level. It's a deep level. It's not a not a user level it's a you know i need to really plug into like the innards of linux kind of uh, developer okay. level okay i thought it was like well this is a, you know like an administration comprehensive at linux administration no very like, very computer sciencey really hey okay. i've got a question for you guys um well, i was gonna say the one thing the corresponding version of that in windows is uh i think it was just called windows programming and it's the same kind of thing threads and processes and sockets at that very very low level um hardcore stuff so as a general uh, web developer uh, or yeah, web developer. How how much do you think that we that the the typical new developer should know about that kind of stuff about configuring Apache and Linux servers? Do you think that's important, or do you think that's not important? <laughs> yeah, that's a good topic. Actually, I'm I think it's just because I'm really really interested, and I've always sort of been involved in that low level stuff. Um, that it's not going to go away for me. 
but I definitely appreciate the people who um, you know have a, a higher abstraction on you know how things work. You don't need to know exactly how machine code works um, to to know how to program. And you see this in the, some of the programming uh, language arguments on Hacker News, like you know, is it do you need to learn C you know in order to be a good software developer? And you know, a lot of the old school people, and I guess I've been perhaps slightly guilty of this over the years, have sort of said, yeah, you need to know C, you need to know you know how pointers work, and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, but I guess I've softened up a bit on that now. Is that you know, to, to drive a car and even to be a racing driver, you don't necessarily need to know about the physics of the fuel and so on. Um, although, you know, top racing drivers do tend to end up learning all of that stuff and the aerodynamics and so on. Um, it's not, you know, an absolute necessity to, to pin down the driving skills. So I think for, for developers, you know, you can be a web developer and um, do very well and thrive. Um, but I just have too much curiosity to ever avoid sort of, you know, getting out of this uh, area. But, you know, if it's, if it's a job, or if it's something that you're just working at a high level and you're happy with that, then yeah, I don't see any problems nowadays. What are your thoughts about that, Gabriel? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of with Peter's camp. I think over the years it's become less and less necessary. But um, at the same point, I'm, I, I've always been like him. I sort of approach to that level and I, I've always done my own system administration and, and tweak boxes and stuff. Um, but the one caveat I'd say is if your company really does end up seemingly if it's going to take off it really needs to achieve some kind of serious scale then you really do need to learn that stuff or get someone in who knows it or otherwise you're just going to be underwater right so i got a related kind of closing question for everybody um it's a two-parter so what are the sort of skills or technologies that you're most embarrassed that you don't know or don't know better at this point and what are the what are the technologies that you're you're, you're most excited to that are coming out that you're going to plan on playing playing with, say, in the next year. So why don't we start with you, Gabe, since you just were talking. Um, I'm going to pass first so I can think about it. <laughs> All right, Justin, who wants to go next? <laughs> it's it, it it does like to to think about what what you're most embarrassed about. It that requires a bit of thought. I don't know why. All it right, I'll, come go, straight I'll to go. Mind. I'll go. You can think okay. about it. You ready? Go on. Okay, so I'm most the things that I think that that I I'm the weakest at that it's sort of embarrassing that I don't know better. One is regular expressions. I suck at regular expressions because every time I need a regular expression, I've tended to just look it up, like a you know regular expression for validating an email or something like that, an email address. And I don't do it frequently enough that I ever have to that it's that I'm constantly remembering. It's like remembering someone's phone number. It's like all on speed dial, right? You know, I use it like once every six months. So I don't use Perl. I'm not on a command line. I'm not grepping files and all that stuff. So I never use it. So that's my excuse. But the reality is I still don't know it, which is sort of embarrassing. Um, I didn't start I didn't use I, I get was one of those things that I didn't know it was kind of embarrassing, but now I'm finally starting to use it. So that embarrassment's going away. And I didn't know Python or Ruby and I thought it was kind of embarrassing not to know at least one of those. Um, but I've, now I'm learning Python, so I'm kind of overcoming that. And so I guess regular expressions and, and learning Python better. And the other one is, I guess, I don't know Linux administration very well at all. I just, again, it's like regular expressions. I just look up enough, I know, to solve whatever little problem I have. I do. Like, for instance, I was trying to install um, a PHP extension for uh, zip, doing zip archives, and it was just like, you know, using yum and all this crap, and I couldn't get to work. I'm like, this is just ridiculous that I don't, I don't I'm able to do this. Okay, I've got an answer to your question now. And, and let me ask one last thing. And the, and the technology <laughs> I'm most excited about, I think, is Node.js, which I've been playing around with, which I think is really cool. And that's okay. probably partially because I, I'm, I'm really good at JavaScript, and now I can do some really cool stuff on the server with it. 
All right, you go, Justin. Okay, so I think I'm most embarrassed that I don't have a, a, a career rooted in C++ or Java. And that my, my career is rooted in Perl and PHP. Um, but but more specifically PHP. So I think that uh, a, a lot of times I'll end up talking to guys in a corporate setting or something and they'll they'll talk about the Java beans and the different Java stuff and the C++ beginnings that they had. And so I kind of feel slightly lacking. And I also feel slightly lacking the fact that I don't have a CS degree. But anyway, that, enough about my insecurities. Uh, what <laughs> what I do, <laughs> what I'm really looking forward to is uh, Node.js, very much so, yeah. That's okay, me. cool. All right, Peter, you're up. Yeah, I thought this one just quickly. It just makes me sound like a complete geek, but um, I guess I'm kind of embarrassed that I've let my C skills slip over the years um, just because I used to be pretty good at C and now I absolutely suck and um, really sort of starting from uh, not scratch, but, you know, things have changed a lot over the years. Um, But on on perhaps a softer level, um, more realistic level, I think it's... I'm kind of embarrassed that I just don't take advantage of, um, you know, working with other people and, um, you know, making the most out of the things that I do know. Um, I'm always very much independent, want to do things sort of by myself. And, uh, you know, I I think it's one of these things, it's very, very difficult to overcome. And I recognize that, but it it does bug me that, you know, I I haven't got anywhere with that. Um, And I'm always uh, sort of fighting my own corner, as it were. Right. No, what are your technologies? Yeah. Yeah, the technology, um, I'm just going to stick with one. Um, I'm going to say JavaScript, and perhaps my venture into uh, JavaScript Weekly um, is a little bit of a clue of uh, that. Um, I'm with uh, Steve, I think it's Steve Yegi. I have no idea to pronounce his name. I'll just see it written yeah, down. Yeah, Steve Yegi. Um, I wouldn't hear my name. Yeah, I'm going with him because he was, um, I think a few years back, he was saying that, oh, there's definitely a language that's going to be like the one of the next decade. And he didn't share what it was for quite a while, and it turned out to be JavaScript. And I'm totally all over that. Um, um, I must admit, I'm not a, a massive JavaScript developer myself. I'm not, you know, a guru by any means. Uh, but I think, you know, it's going to become re- even more important over the next two or three years, and could really start encroaching onto the territory of, uh, you know, languages like Ruby, for example. Yeah, and one last thing. One thing I want to add to that is, uh, co- I don't know if you've seen CoffeeScript, but CoffeeScript yeah. is it, it will compile down or whatever it could translate into one to one to JavaScript in it. That was from the Ruby world. Yeah, so it, it, it looks very Ruby or Python-like. It doesn't have the brace, open and closing braces, and it's just very minimalist. Um, and, uh, yeah, so for people who are coming from the Python or Ruby world and are like, hey, I don't like these braces, and this is just, like, unnecessary code, it, you know, kind of... Yeah, it was bootstrapped in Ruby. Did, uh, Jason, did, did you know that uh, most of the stuff that Google do is essentially Java? They, so they code in Java, but then that compiles to JavaScript. Well, they do, yeah. They ha- right. I remember reading some articles about that a few years ago. But yeah, they do mostly Java. They do some Python, but mostly Java for, and, and C++. They do a lot of C++, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was my language. That was my language for seven years or whatever was C++. I was a pure C++ guy until about 2000. Yeah, probably 2000. Or... So Gabriel's had plenty of time to think about this, so he's going to have the best answer. <laughs> so I want something really <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah, this, this needs to be <laughs> really, really good. embarrassing. Um, it used to be the, the, the version control stuff, but I in the last... You, year and a half i like you jason i've gotten into that more you know but probably it's it's more with justin than the cs degree like i don't have a cs degree i never really had much formal training and so whenever people are on hacker news talking about various you know standard computer science questions or like interview questions people ask i would i would be terrible at answering any of that crap you know (laughs) um (laughs) so i'm a little embarrassed about that um as for languages um i I don't want to totally steal your answer, but I, I'm actually also interested in checking out Node.js too. I have a particular 
some needs and ideas for how to use it, and I really haven't looked at it much. Well, hit, hit me up if you if you ever have a question on it or whatever. Hit me up. I'm starting to, you know, I have a good strong JavaScript background, and I've been playing with Node.js a lot, so I'm getting up to speed on it. So if you want if you want to hit me up, I, if it goes for anyone on Node.js, I'll I'll uh, can give you a, at least my two cents on it. I just cool. want to add that that CouchDB is is just as much worth looking at as Node.js. I mean, it's really very very interesting. And, Interesting. Um, I would consider those completely different things, but that's probably just my lack of... Well, the, because ca- well, that's, that's the kind of thing that I didn't real- realize about CouchDB, but CouchDB is, like, you know, it, it's a server as well. It's its own server, hmm. and it's an integrated database. And so, for example, you store everything as JSON, but also you can have um, JavaScript functions which kind of act like store procedures. And you do the same thing with MongoDB, if you remember we interviewed... That's um, right. Michael Duroff, Duroff, or whatever, and he's but, um, same thing. What, what Sebastian's done with CouchDB for, for our Think Tank project, which is basically our brainstorming app so far, is just amazing. And, and basically, it's just 100% CouchDB, just nothing else. So it's very, very interesting, and I'd, I'd recommend looking at that too. You know, related to Node.js and that kind of stuff is um, the um, one thing that Guy and I played around with a little bit is MongoDB. And uh, the other thing that I think um, Curtis and I on Uber are going to be looking at is Redis for storing in its replace of something like a memcache for in case a node goes down and we need to reinstantiate ourselves instantaneously. Redis is awesome. Yeah, Redis looks awesome. So there's key value stores. But one thing I've noticed with Node.js, we were playing around a little bit with some of the MySQL drivers and stuff. And the MySQL stuff, it might be the same for Postgres and some of the other stuff, isn't doesn't seem to quite mature. It's not quite there yet. But the drivers for like Redis and Mongo and probably CouchDB are kind, are kind of there. So it might even be easier if you're using Node.js to just make a jump and say, right, for the Node.js stuff, I'm just going to use... Um, I'm going to use the NoSQL backend uh, data store as opposed to trying to connect in with MySQL or Postgres. But that said, one thing we're doing is to get around that because there's a bunch of database stuff that's in MySQL already is we're using like a equivalent of a curl call as just an HTTP client where you do a call from Node.js to a web service that's written in PHP or Python, you know, and, that, and that's a separate, you know, it's just a standard web service and, and then you get a result back. So you could write your web service in Ruby or Python or Perl or whatever and then um, and, and that where it does all the database calls and all that stuff. So how, that's easy, how easy is it to install uh, Node.js server? Easy, 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 schneezy. What do you have to Especially, do? Well, okay, first of all, um, you know, I didn't have such a great idea, a great experience with NPM, which is like the Node Package Manager, but I just, uh, if you install Git, which of course takes, I think, no time, and I'm, a, I'm not, a, and you're talking to somebody who's not a Linux guy, and so whenever I start lo- looking at a series of Linux, you know, commands that I have to do to make something work, I'm just like, oh, crap. But I was able to just, you know, install Git and then just clone, just go to um, whatever it was. I think you just had to, do a clone or something in Node.js. I mean, it, it, I, I can't even remember, but it wasn't an issue. If, I, if it was painful at all, I would remember it. So but what does it run? I mean, how does it run? Does it have like an, a, a binary on Mac? Or, I mean, what, what's, what's its binary? Is it JavaScript or... No, I, I think I mean, I think it's all written in C, the Node.js server itself. It's just JavaScript. Is, it uses Google V8. That's right. That's right. It, it runs on top of Google V8, but I think it has a lot it's of... C++. C++, okay, right. Right, that's right. So yeah, it, it's definitely the, the Google V8 engine, which is, if people don't know, that's the, that's the JavaScript engine that's built into Chrome. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so Node.js is hot. I think that's going to be, I, I mean, obviously I already had a big year, but it's going to continue to have a, a, a lot of, uh, another big year or two. I think it's going to get a lot of attention because there's so many front-end people who know JavaScript who don't really know the server-side stuff. 
And now you can write some really cool server-side stuff. The only thing is you have to learn how to write asynchronously. You can't just do things synchronously if you're doing any sort of reads to a database or, or anything that's external that isn't like instantaneous. You have to, you can't write any blocking code. You know, um, I think that this show should be wrapped up. I think that's it. Uh, we've been yeah, going was, for a while now. We've, it was we've a, practically got two hours going on here. Yeah, well, we had a couple of great guests. It was it was uh, yeah. really great having you guys on, um, Peter and Gabe. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks. That's great. Thanks. I'm going to be writing uh, computer science for geeks after this, after everything we've talked about, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, we. I think one thing that Justin and I are aiming for with this sh- with these panel shows is that, you know, we interview people and we're like, we and generally speaking, we end up really liking the people that we interview and we find them really interesting and smart. And we're like, God, you know, we we've already interviewed him so we can't like interview him again so this love gives, you too yeah <laughs> thank you but it just gives us an opportunity to get you guys group back hug on. yeah yes, group hug. Hug. totally so we're gonna we're gonna we're trying to create like, a, like just like this week in tech you know we'll kind of create like a bunch of our semi-regular guests so you know whenever you guys have some some time we'll get you back on and mix and match and just you know have some more fun nerdy geek talk all right wrap it up all right that's a wrap yeah. we're out <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> 